Hey, a new VanCast to get your week started, hopefully to cheer you up after the Vancouver Canucks fall 2-1 to the Columbus Blue Jackets and the world seems to be shutting down and certainly coronavirus is having an impact on the way that we do business to the point that, Drancer, uh, you and I aren't even in the same room today. We're doing this remotely. Uh, we're taking these extreme <laughs> measures. We just can't afford to affect or impact uh, each other or our VIPs. Indeed, you know... I'm actually podcasting with a mask. No, <laughs> no, but look, it's uh, it's a weird world right now. And, you know, the world of tennis, they just canceled the fifth major. Obviously, the Women's World Championship in Halifax got canceled this weekend. The Canucks changed up media procedures yesterday so that player post game occurred at a podium setting, a sort of perimeter of, of several feet guarding players from interacting directly with the media, uh, being within media cough zones. And it looks like the NHL will send out a media uh, a media sort of guideline to various team executives and PR directors mandating a change league-wide. Uh, but this weekend was so weird after the news broke, you know, through Frank Saravalli and Elliot Friedman. And teams were sort of left to their own devices to kind of fend for themselves and determine what course of action they wanted to take. And, and we got that yesterday when, during morning skate, the media walks into the room and Bo Horvat sizes us up and, all, and jokes, I thought you guys were quarantined, right? Which was honestly one of the best jokes of the year. By that evening, right, the Canucks had consulted with their team physician who himself had consulted with a local infectious diseases specialist and they'd mandated their own sort of new procedure which I think you know the media pool in Vancouver I think everyone understood right there wasn't a lot of grumbling and yet this weird moment sort of typified by the fact that the Canucks did their post-game availability at a podium while the Columbus Blue Jackets just opened the room and you know I think that's kind of the last game where we'll see different approaches. I think going forward, everyone's going to be doing sort of the same thing and, and we'll kind of see where we get to, but I wouldn't be stunned to see visiting teams up on that podium, visiting team coaches up on that podium, you know, when next we cover a game on Tuesday uh, when the Canucks host the Islanders. Right. And the real test then becomes what happens when the Canucks are the road team and they go to Arizona and Denver on Thursday and Friday. And so we'll see, you know, first of all, we'll see where the world is by then. I mean, things are changing by the minute. Uh, but also the Canucks have all the infrastructure at home uh, to facilitate things that way. And, you know, last night, as you said, like it was just uh, it was, you know, everything was sort of by the minute and things were changing. And I, look, I totally support it. I have no issues. I'm able to do my job. I know it affects you and we can get into sort of the differences of uh, how it impacts us and, and why it matters ultimately to the fans. Cause I saw some pushback on Saturday when I tweeted out, you know, like I support all of this. Like we just don't know. There's so much unknown right now. Uh, I don't think that you can take too many precautions but I am curious to see what the Canucks do when they're the road team on Thursday and Friday. And then beyond that, uh, you know, they come back home and they play Winnipeg and Tampa. Then they have a California road trip. And we're talking sort of 10 to 12 days out right now. But uh, anybody that's been following this story knows that, you know, there's these cruise ships that are docked off the coast of California. Uh, you talked about Indian Wells in Palm Springs. 
Like, where is this going to be in 10 days' time when the Canucks are in Los Angeles at Staples Center and then the following night, uh, you know, in Anaheim at uh, the Honda Center? So, uh, so many moving parts, and really all you can do is sort of take it uh, by the moment here. And we'll get around and talk some hockey in a sec, but uh, it is fascinating because for the most part, you know, I'm a radio guy. Yeah, I do some writing as well post-game. And, you know, you dabble in radio, but writing is your bread and butter. And I think there is a distinct difference in the way that we kind of go about our business in that locker room when we have access. But now uh, that the playing field has changed a little bit, it does make things more difficult for a guy like you who's trying to deliver this unique content. Uh, You've been a guy that has, you know, been able to really sort of break down some walls and pull back curtains and and sort of, you know, delve into some behind-the-scenes things that will be terrific uh, with players past and present this year. And, you know, last night's a perfect example. I mean, Elias Pettersson scores maybe his goal of the year and certainly delivers his quote of the year. And I think that's probably our jumping-on point here because, as you mentioned after the game, like, in another world, maybe that's a quote that you get that the rest of us don't get. Yeah, I mean, I honestly think so. Just because I think I've, you know, built that rapport with Pedersen that I know his reaction after that penalty and when when it combines with what you see or with the way that he skated. Uh, you know, I, PD just has that chip on his shoulder at all moments, right? And, and so, but yeah, usually I think people would have sort of exhausted the more ordinary questions and I would have waited patiently to the side, right? And just waited for everyone to leave. And then I kind of would have sprung the formulation, the, you know, anger as fuel formulation. And and I I mean, usually I I feel like that's something I might get off to the side and exclusive. And and when people read it in the armies, it's like, wow, what a quote. And, you know, everything is shared now, right? Like now the Canucks Twitter account has that before I'm even upstairs and transcribing. And, you know, fair enough. We're, we're living in a world where, uh, at least for now, all there's not going to be such a thing as an exclusive player quote postgame. And, you know, we'll see how that affects things, other things. I mean, you know, not to pull back the curtain too much, but I'm in the middle of a pretty lengthy project with JT Miller that's involved us spending 45 minutes together over the course of the past week, just one-on-one. And... You know, I I mean, I'm not sure how I finish that project, right? It it will require phone calls, most likely. And we'll sort of see how Canucks PR accommodates that. Um, You know, how the league accommodates that. I mean, I think by the time I'm working on that again, there will be league-mandated guidelines. And, and, you know, we'll see if we even know what those look like by the time we show up to the rink tomorrow. And it's just going to be a very weird sort of setting. and, And fair enough. I mean, this is a disease that's you know accelerating pretty pretty quickly globally and you know all reasonable precautions should be made to protect player health and and protect our health and and you know one thing before we sort of get too far down the road is just remind people to take every precaution possible and and wash their hands and and look after yourself and and do what you can to you know help protect i mean for for most of our listeners right this might just be like the flu but there are vulnerable people among us and if a small percentage of people get the disease to the point where they are hospitalized that stretches you know health resources pretty pretty thin so do your best to to look after yourself wash your hands at length and uh and best of luck out here in this crazy world 
Yeah, and when you talk about the National Hockey League and what they're doing, uh, Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly is going to be on with Pierre Lebron and Scott Burnside, the two-man advantage podcast here at The Athletic midweek. So uh, you'll get the latest from the league, uh, from the Deputy Commission, Gary Bettman's right-hand man. So you can look for that. And, you know, I am curious to see uh, how the National Hockey League, you know, are they leaders in this? Are they going to be followers? Are they taking their cues from other professional sports? You know, we talked to the players yesterday about this notion of somewhere down the line playing in front of empty arenas and like none of them can wrap their heads around it at all like Bo Horvat like he just absolutely had trouble processing uh, that very idea so you know let's hope that it doesn't get to that but at the same time you know we're just at a point in time where I don't think you can be too cautious or take too many measures and that's kind of you know even like when the Canucks do that walkout uh, for their introduction before the first period and they take the long route and you know in the past they've gone by and they've done the high five with all the fans that are kind of packed in there just outside the locker room you could see last night that they had pushed the barriers back and given the players a wider berth the fans were still there they walked past them but you know there was no interaction even though the Canucks are wearing gloves and they're in full equipment you know again they're just it's one more thing, one less interaction with the public. It's sort of, you know, in my mind, people say, what's the deal? You know, 10 media guys after a game, you know, the players are all sweating and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, to me, it's just one less interaction that these elite athletes and the stars of the show, uh, it's one less time that they're put in proximity to, you know, an outside group and who knows where any of us have been and been in contact with. So, uh, you know, to bring it down uh, sort of another level here, uh, and we saw this firsthand last night that these policies affected the Botchford project. We are nine candidates in to the Botchford project, and you and I are both very much, uh, you know, hands on with this at the front ed- for the leading edge. Uh, and we had uh, a terrific day with Danny Huntley was uh, the ninth candidate, and she's been doing some work for Canucks Army, and she had her chance. But you know, this the, 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 that whole Botchford project experience is to give aspiring writers the full. Uh, effect of, you know, what we do, what Botch did on a daily basis, and now all of a sudden the room is closed. She was trying to get access to Jake Furtanen, and it never happened, and they're still trying to uh, hook her up with Jake by telephone, and I, I you know, I want to make sure that uh, Danny gets what she needs out of it ultimately. I mean, she had her day at the rink, and she got to watch a game from Botch's seat, but, you know, this project was designed to let these people be hands-on, and so it's just another way that all of this uh, is impacting access for people that want it no question and and you know that's it's going to be tough going forward it's going to be a different sort of setup for everybody including you know people who are taking part in a project designed to you know honor our our late former colleague and i mean just uh just it's going to be such a weird sort of thing and story to track here over the next few weeks and you know i i it's hard to imagine Based on the rate of the spread and how, you know, the economy is reacting and how containment policies, uh, how effective they've been around the world. Like, it's hard to imagine that this is sort of the high watermark in terms of, you know, steps leagues take to react. Um, You know, the NHL looks like it's the first uh, league that's going to close locker rooms or, or prescribe a specific policy in response to the threat uh, posed by the, you know, potential pandemic the spread of COVID-19 so you know we're, we're still in early days and and it's just going to be you know one of those things where everyone kind of has to be patient has to be understanding has to allow common sense to prevail as 
you know, leagues take a variety of different steps to protect the public and, and players in general. So uh, just a weird story, man. And uh, and anyway, I, th- I do think we should get back to the on-ice product because last night was a tough loss uh, for the Canucks team. Right. And I was going to say, look, this is real life. This is the serious stuff. The games are just that. They are games. But, hey, this was effective. It kept us uh, from talking about the Canucks and the Blue Jackets for 10 minutes. So uh, I like that part of it at the very least. But you're right. It's a hockey podcast. So let's jump on in. Can we blame coronavirus in any way for the Canucks performance to start the third period last night? No, no, that was no. You know, you know, the Canucks haven't played well, obviously, since what? I guess we could say the all-star break, right? I think they have, is it, you know, they're under a point per game. They've got 18 points in 19 games since the all-star break. Uh, You know, some of their defensive issues have been present, pronounced, obvious. You know, obviously these losses to the Blue Jackets coming on Sundays separated, you know, by a week, right? Uh, Those are going to sting, especially when you consider that that four-point swing is the difference between you know, competing for the division lead and hanging on to the second wild card spot by virtue of the second tiebreaker, right? So, you know, this has been a really tough week for the Canucks and a really tough stretch. And in all of that, all of that, especially during the course of this sort of shorter term skid, this one in one in five stretch over their last six games, for me anyway, that five minutes and 36 seconds that opened the third period where they surrendered Nine shots against, right? Down two. Nine shots against. They come out and, and surrender in the to begin the third period. Uh, natural stat trick had them down for 11 scoring chances against in that stretch and seven of the high danger variety. It's a Canucks team that's typically been pretty good while chasing leads throughout the season. It's a Canucks team that's typically responded very well to adversity. Uh, this is a Canucks team that, if you could criticize the results or the defensive play, I don't think there was much to criticize in terms of effort. And for me, anyway, that five minutes was about as bad as it's been all year, about as about as tough to explain and swallow. And, you know, I, if, if there's sort of one sequence that I guess had me shaking my head post-game, it was their play in that five minutes. And I think that's totally fair. And I, look, Travis Green always talks about honesty with his players. I thought he soft-sold uh, that five-minute stretch because their season is now effectively hanging in the balance. Like, they have lost all margin for error. And so even a five-minute stretch, you know, yeah, they scored and they cut it to one. Uh, you know, so you can say, well, that five-minute stretch didn't kill them, but it was five minutes that they didn't use effectively to mount a comeback. And if you think back to the game in Ottawa, they did well you know, they had played okay, but the Senators were not good that night. And the Canucks did well to score, got some momentum going into the third period. 14 seconds in, they give up a goal. And again, it just, it it makes the mountain that much steeper when you're trying to come from behind and claw your way back into these games. And so, uh, you know, I would even wind it back to the final 30 seconds of the second period. Because at one nothing down going to the third, it's not ideal, but they're they're not dead by any stretch. They were in that boat against Arizona last week, and they you know scored twice to take a lead, and we know what happened there. But against the Blue Jackets, you know you give up a second goal, uh, especially when they're at the back end of back to backs and the tail end of a road trip. I mean, giving them that two nothing cushion, uh, all of a sudden it's that boa constrictor that's just wrapping around you uh, and looking to finally squeeze the life out of you. And so you know, yeah, the five minutes to start the third, uh, quite frankly, inexcusable in my mind. But then the final 12 minutes of the game weren't a whole lot better. Like, they needed something, 
And Elias Pettersson provided that something. And we talked about his quote afterwards. You know, I, I wanted to use my anger as fuel. What an incredible sequence. He takes the penalty, stews in the penalty box for, for a full two minutes. I joked on Twitter that he just ingested rocket fuel for two full minutes. <laughs> and, like, I, I, I don't know. Have we ever seen him skate like that? Um I mean, talk about a guy that was determined and trying to make something happen for his hockey club. And all of that, the play, the effort, the finish, and 12 minutes remaining, like that should have led to more for the Vancouver Canucks over the final dozen minutes of the hockey game, and it didn't. They had a power play. It kind of went quietly into the night, as the hockey club did. And, you know, now one win in six, you know, five wins in their last 16 at this time of year, they only have 14 games to go. They got five wins in their last 16. Now, all of a sudden, they're probably going to need eight, maybe nine wins in these final 14. And so, based on current form, uh, that seems like an awfully big ask. And I, I just thought a pretty disappointing finish to the hockey game last night after that Pedersen goal. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the Canucks' hold of, you know, what has unfolded to this point, like an you know, outrageously promising season you know, is is disintegrating like Pedersen's stick on that sort of late power play opportunity that they had, right? And, you know, that play was remarkable, right? That was that was Pedersen channeling McDavid, you know? He skated the full length of the ice in three and a half seconds, essentially. And, you know, finished, beat Elvis while he was falling down, having been hauled down by Ryan Murray. Uh, you know, when you sort of look at a player who makes a, a run like that. And that was, you know, McDavid-like, albeit against two power play players who'd been on the ice for 70-ish seconds, 65 seconds. So they were tired. Pedersen was fresh. But nonetheless, I mean, he closed 20 feet on Ryan Murray by the time they hit the, the like, red line, by the time they hit the neutral zone, maybe, maybe in six paces. And, you know, by the time... Pedersen crosses Columbus's blue, you know, Murray already basically knows, and you can kind of tell by his posture that he's going to have to go yard sale just to try and make any kind of play on the, on the puck on Pedersen. And I mean, just an, an unbelievably skilled play, uh, a great finish. I do think that, uh, you know, I do think that Pedersen was trying to put the puck high. Uh, I thought that was funny. His reaction to Ben Kuzma, when Kuzma's asked him if he was trying to go five hole and Patterson was like, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Started laughing. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, and, and I didn't really catch it in the moment. I had to kind of rewatch the interview to realize uh, just how cheeky Pedersen had been. But, you know, it was an excellent goal. The Canucks had their chances. But they, you know, and it's, it's honestly, for me, it reminds me a lot of that Arizona game as opposed to the Columbus game a, a week ago where they coughed up that lead but really should have had that game. For me, it reminded me of that Arizona game because on balance, you can pretty easily make the argument that they deserve better, that they were the better team. But they weren't good enough to sort of eliminate all doubt, to really be like, well, you know, they absolutely deserve that game. Like, what a what a crime. You know, it wasn't stolen from them by any means. No, they just, no, no. They kind of they lost a coin flip. And at this time of year, you know, you kind of have to be better than that. And, you know, they weren't against Arizona. They weren't against Columbus. I think they can credibly say we played well. 
but I don't think they can credibly say that they deserve better, if that makes sense. Like, there's a sort of distinction there that I think is crucial, and, and I don't think any way that they hurdle over that bar based on their performance against Columbus. Right, and, and it is important to take the quality of opponent into, into context, and I mean, to me, it's just so stark when the Blue Jackets have three wins now in 15 games, and two of them, their only two regulation wins, have come against the Canucks. I mean, my point there is everybody... And I mean, everybody has been taking points off the Columbus Blue Jackets. They play hard. Uh, they get a lot of games to overtime, but they don't win many games. And two of their last three wins over a six-game or six-week stretch have come at the hands of the Vancouver Canucks at the wrong time of the season. Which is why Canuck fans probably don't want to hear that the Islanders have two wins in their last twelve uh, heading into uh, Tuesday night's <laughs> game. Like none of that matters anymore because. Uh, the Canucks have lost the benefit of the doubt, whether it's two against Columbus, whether it was in Ottawa, whether it was at home to Anaheim. You know, all these games that on paper, uh, at the very least, were there for the taking. And when you talk about the difference and just the margins for error right now, you know, they're one in five in their last six. If they're three and three in those six, they're battling with Vegas and Edmonton and Calgary for the division lead. Instead, they're one in five, and those points that uh, they have let get away uh, absolutely are coming back to haunt them now. I mean, it's, it's still within their grasp. It's just that they've used up their games in hand. Uh, they have no momentum. Uh, their scoring has dropped other than the other night when, you know, Zach McEwen stepped up and that third line was terrific. But look, you and I have been, I think, a little bit ahead of the curve here. I mean, how many times have we talked on the pod? That Bohorat line, like that second line has gone into hiding and they were on the ice again last night for one of the goals against if they're getting scored on and they're not scoring uh that's a caustic combination for a second line that you know since the all-star break really has produced nothing and when i say nothing i mean it at even strength like there has been no offensive contribution at five on five from horvat with pearson and primarily with louis erickson it's a tough league to win in if your second line that was so productive during the run of 14 and three like it the shoe has completely dropped on this one like these guys have gone from it's a complete 180 like they've gone from being offensive drivers during that stretch that put the canucks way above the bar to completely evaporating as any kind of offensive contributors right now yeah, there's not not a lot else to say about it. I mean, the 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 Canucks sort of switched up their lines late against Columbus. Uh, you know, they sort of tried two different configurations in the third period. Came out with Pearson uh, alongside Pedersen and was it Toffoli? Yeah, and then, Travis Green and said then, after the game he was trying to get some of that '70s line magic going. Right, and then and then they sort of switched it to to maintain the Horvat-Pearson pair and the Pedersen-Miller pair uh, with Vertanen on that top line while Toffoli played uh, with Bo Horvat. And look, I think they got to try that. I mean, you know, one thing that was interesting to me is that Erickson started the game last night against, or sorry, alongside um, Bo Horvat, but played really most of the game on the fourth line. And against Colorado, Erickson spent almost the entire game with Bo Horvat, with the exception of a few situational uh, offensive zone draws. And one thing I think that tells you is that Green sized up Colorado and sized up Nathan McKinnon and thought, I need my safest guy with Bo Horvat. And when he went to size up Pierre-Luc Dubois and the, you know, and Pierre-Luc Dubois is an amazing player. He's just not Nathan McKinnon, right? And when he went to size up Columbus, he said, okay, I can afford to 
take some chances here, perhaps, with, with Vertanen on the Horvat line, right? Like, I think that tells you a lot about how Travis sized up the opponent uh, that he was sort of facing. And, you know, that's, uh, I mean, that makes sense. But the fact remains that, you know, they are at this moment where they just don't have a ton of options. Vertanen... You know, I, I mean, I, I didn't think he had a particularly good game against Columbus. I didn't think he had a particularly good game against Colorado. It's really tough for me to make the argument that he should be full-time on a, in a matchup role for the Canucks. And we've sort of seen that he takes a fair bit of, you know, offensive pop off the table when he's played alongside Miller and Pedersen, which he's done for nearly 100 minutes to this point in the season. So a large enough sample that we can say, Hey, like, you know, they seem to carry play, but they don't seem to convert the same way that Pedersen and Miller have with Toffoli or Besser. So, you know, I mean, probably worth trying that configuration again. At least it does get you a little bit more offense in that top six group. Although, you know, one thing to note is that arguably it makes your bottom six a lot slower, right? And a lot less dangerous offensively. So, you know, you get to this point with a team that, is limited, is down three top six quality forwards in terms of injuries, and there's just not a lot of good options here. And that strikes me as, you know, an indictment of Vancouver's depth, and I've, I've sort of repeated that throughout the season, but, you know, I think it becomes magnified uh, when you get to this type time of the year and when you kind of look through what options the Canucks have, and, and you know, I don't see many, I don't see any, that really make a, make a lot of sense or that I like. Like, I think that the Canucks, you know, I mean, do you try Miller at center? Do you break glass in case of emergency? Are we at that <laughs> point in the season yet, right? And, well, uh, and we probably are. But, yeah, man, I mean, there are no good options here. I mean, that's why it was promising and, and welcoming to see Brock Besser back on the ice at the morning skate on Sunday. Right. But, you know, this point has to be underscored. Like, as we record this on Monday, it's another team day off. They play the Islanders on Tuesday. Wednesday's a travel day. Thursday and Friday are game days. Saturday, a game off. You know, if Brock Besser needs a practice or two uh, to, you know, clear his mind that he's fully capable of absorbing contract with a, you know, a rib injury, like, you don't get a lot of contact in morning skates. And so it's difficult at this time of year for a guy that's been out a month to get back up to speed. Uh, but I have to say, like, he wasn't wearing a non-contact jersey, so that was a really promising sign to me that, you know, he's relatively close and we'll see where it goes. And if he travels, like, if he's a possibility on the road trip or that Sunday game against Winnipeg, whatever the case, I, I mean, I think we're going to see Brock Besser again uh, well before the end of the season. It's just a question of, you know, are the Canucks still playing these meaningful games that they've talked so much about? You know, if this uh, losing skid continues a whole lot further, uh, it won't matter that there's 14 games to go because only half of them ultimately may have an impact uh, on where they stand in the playoff. I mean, you want to believe that they're going to find a way to grind out a few wins and that they'll stay in the hunt here, but uh, certainly not trending in the right direction. Uh, so, you know, going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, when Besser can get back in there and ultimately uh, where he slots in and how Travis Green handles him. I just want to go back to Bo Horvat for a sec here. This is, you know, since the All-Star break, 19 games now, 280 minutes of even strength ice time. Horvat's been outscored 16-6. to 
he doesn't have an even strength or a five-on-five goal in that time. And Tanner Pearson doesn't have an even strength assist since the All-Star break. So, you know, it's not all on Horvat. Uh, he needs a little bit of help. And, you know, everybody focuses on the right side and what's going on there. But, you know, Tanner Pearson has finished and he's got his empty netters. But uh, he has not picked up an, a five-on-five assist since the All-Star break. So pretty tough for Bo Horvat uh, to be finishing if, you know, guys aren't getting him the puck. And, and that's supposed to be the checking line. And if you use Horvat as the proxy there, you know, they've been outscored by 10 goals in 19 games since the All-Star break. Well, and, and let's just focus on the offensive side of it. Because if you look at goals four by regular Canucks centermen, so this is not goals four by Bo Horvat, but goals four, on-ice goals four with Bo Horvat on the ice. And we'll go by centermen. Elias Pettersson, 20, right? Adam Gaudet, 11. Brandon Sutter, nine, Bo Horvat, six, right? Like that's, that's tough, man. I don't know how you sort of can win games when that's sort of what it looks like. And and what's got to be really frustrating is when you look at the goal differentials, like over this 18 game stretch when the Canucks have played and lost so frequently, they've outscored opponents 20 to nine by 11 over 18 games with Elias Pettersson on the ice. And they're yeah. still not able to generate results. Now, one thing you'd add, I'd add just in, in defense of Bo Horvat real quickly is the underlying profile is not, not particularly promising. But by expected goals, you would have expected him to be outscored by one, not by ten. And the on-ice shooting percentage is 4.23. That's extraordinarily low. So. Right. There's there's a little more going on here than just Horvath yep. struggles. There's there's some brutal finishing luck and and some of that will regress. But I mean, when you consider that with Bo Horvath on the ice, the Canucks have scored 33 percent less goals than they have with Brandon Sutter. That's not going to get it done at this time of year. And you know, as much as I'd like to sort of point to that 940 PDO over the stretch we're talking about, you know, this is not the process time of year. This is the do or die time of year to quote Horvat himself. And at the moment anyway, with that check, with that matchup line on the ice, it's not working. And you know, it, maybe that's a reason why Vancouver should consider whether it's moving Miller to center or whether it's playing the Pedersen line sort of straight up, uh, making some kind of change because something, something needs to move. For this team to, you know, even just to give the team a momentary burst of energy here. Uh, it seems like something they just need. And, you know, I'd expect I'd expect something different will be tried at least when the Canucks host the Islanders tomorrow. Yeah, and as I mentioned, the Islanders are struggling. What do the Islanders do reasonably well? They defend. I mean, they're a lot like the Columbus Blue Jackets. So if the Canucks, you know, were... Uh, strangled essentially by the Blue Jackets, you know, they probably have to be prepared for a very similar looking game. I know that uh, there was a little bit more offense than that. The game at Barclays Center uh, back on February the 1st when Quinn Hughes was electric and and scored twice, including the overtime winner. And, you know, they won 4-3 that day. Really, you can track it back. Like that was the end of the run. That was the 14th win in the 14 and three stretch, and since then it uh, has been a struggle for the Vancouver Canucks. So uh, again, it doesn't matter who the opponent is right now. Uh, they've shown an ability to be good teams. They have struggled against bad teams. Uh, they just got to focus on themselves and, and try to figure this thing out because uh, it's just not trending in the right direction for them. And you know they, they've sort of, and you guys pointed it out in the uh, in the Athletics or the Armies. Um, 
that they've squandered some decent goaltending. Like, you know, a week ago, all the concern was Thatcher Demko. Thatcher Demko has sort of stabilized and provided them enough goaltending. They didn't lose last night because of goaltending. They lost because they only generated one goal uh, on a Columbus team that, uh, you know, didn't really want to trade chances. And, you know, part of the problem for me, too, Drancer, was Elvis. You mentioned him. He was in goal. It was his first start in three weeks. Like, test the guy. Make him make some saves. And they had six shots in the first period, including a power play that didn't generate a single shot on goal. So we can talk about the final period, but I thought the opening period was a real missed opportunity for the Vancouver Canucks when the Blue Jackets had all three shots on goal. Yeah, and and they hit some posts, and and I mean... You know, no, Toffoli was I liked, all over the puck. Like he I, was. I loved, I loved his quote post game where he was like, "I should have had three. I was just like, "Wow, <laughs> like that's that's a good level of confidence to have, considering how poorly the Canucks have played over the last six games." I was pretty impressed by that overall. Like that's that's the type of comment you can make when you've got a cup ring. You know, like that just yeah. struck me. That just struck me as this preternatural level of man. I should have had three goals. Just matter of fact, right? There was no boastfulness. In his tone, right? He was just like, yeah, I should have three goals. Like, did you see those chances? Uh, you know, I like that. If there's sort of one thing that sort of struck me as, as you know, being good news, right? Like, you know, beyond the fact that Pedersen had played really well again, uh, you know, it seemed to me like Bo Horvat was really frustrated post-game, looked really frustrated post-game. But Toffoli seemed completely nonplussed. Like, I should have had three goals. I think it's hard to argue with him like that play he made on the toe drag where he hit the post like that was a beautiful play and you know this team still has enough talent to get it done like they're still scoring goals they're scoring more than three goals a game since the all-star break the defense hasn't been good enough you know and I think another part another thing that's kind of happened now is you've got this distribution error where the Canucks score enough to win on games that Demko's not good, right? And then <laughs> and yeah. then don't score any uh, on a night like last night when Demko's solid. And that kind of is where you get to that's the, again, these are all the lines that start to add up and matter at this time of year. And look, the Canucks just need need to just find a win or two here, stabilize their season and uh, and see what they can do, but man, Getting Brock Besser back, that would be mammoth, especially because then you could credibly bump to Foley down, you know, look for that 70s line magic with Horvat, uh, give Horvat a, a chance, you know, with a with two pretty solid wingers, right? Like two guys who probably belong in an NHL top six, uh, something that he hasn't had necessarily uh, in the past two seasons, and, uh, and you know, as, while, while playing really tough minutes, right? So I think that would be a huge game breaker for Vancouver uh, getting Besser back, and, and we'll kind of learn more about his status when we show up at the rink for morning skate on, on Tuesday. Not that the Canucks are telling us much in, in terms of injuries these days. On to the frantic 14. There are 14 games remaining for the Canucks, seven at home, seven on the road. They wrap up the homestand, as you mentioned, the Isles in town, and then... Uh, key games. I mean, they're all big ones, but uh, a rematch with the Arizona Coyotes in Glendale on Thursday, and then into Denver at elevation, back to back, three and four nights. Like that's going to be a challenge. Uh, the way McKinnon uh, was dealing the other night, the way he does every night. I saw that he was in on three Ooh. of the four Colorado goals uh, last night in <laughs> San Jose. So the guy's just an yeah. absolute beast, and he's fun Monster. to watch. But 
but not much fun to play against, I, I can't imagine, uh, if you're the Canucks <laughs> or anybody else. So uh, we'll break down the game against the Islanders with our next VanCast midweek, and then uh, I'm heading out on the road. Uh, you're sitting this one out, but uh, uh, we'll see how things uh, for the Vancouver Canucks, as you said, they, they just have to. I mean, if they're going to be a playoff team, they got to find a way to turn this around in a hurry uh, and start to grind out some results. Uh, make sure you rate and subscribe the VanCast on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash the VanCast, you'll get 40% off your subscription. So, uh, Drancer, I, I leave you with this. Just get out into the world today and, and use your anger as fuel. <laughs> I will direct it at Blake Price. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a good, he's a good target. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and a stubborn ox, so uh, should make for good radio anyway. <laughs> All right. Uh, pitch in for Sakaris. I guess I'll talk to you on the air that way, but uh, that's going to do it for another edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and theathletic.com. <laughs>